0: Good morning church. Today we are kicking off a new series. Uh we finished up just kind of like a vision kind of series for the first 3 weeks I was here. And today we're kicking off uh this new series um where we're going to be talking we're going to study through 1 Corinthians. It's going to be a very brief, okay? Um so if you grew up in a church, if you grew up in church, you probably grew up with a pastor preaching through a book like 1 Corinthians in like a year and a half. Um I've condensed it to 6 weeks, okay? So we can all do that, right? So we're going to study. We're gonna, I'll talk about why it's brief here in a little bit and how we can actually do it in six weeks. But uh, tonight there's like a game or something on. I don't know if you guys have heard of the Super Bowl. It's kind of catching on. It's, it's a new game. Uh, it's a, kind of a big deal. But um, that's going to be going on tonight. And so we just kind of wanted to just, uh, just acknowledge the fact <laughs> that the rest of the world is talking about the Super Bowl and wear goofy jerseys and just have fun with this, okay? And so uh, I've been asked a lot about my jersey. And I told everybody, wait till the sermon, wait till the sermon, because I'm going to talk about it, okay? This is my dad's jersey, not his actual jersey, but like his, he bought this. And so it's a Joe Namath jersey, okay? And I guarantee you there are not many preachers in the world who have preached in a Joe Namath jersey. So I'm, a, I'm among a few people here, okay? <laughs> but my dad grew up in the 60s, and he was born in 1960, and I'll make some of you feel old cuz you're I'm young but whatever. My dad was born in 1960 and so he grew up in the era of Joe Namath. And so Joe Namath just took the football world by storm. I mean, he was this bigger than life guy who just was all over the place. I mean, he was really the fir- Hollywood. I mean, like he, he was the first guy to just have a persona in the football world too. He was one of the first anyway. And so my dad grew up in an Alabama family. Okay, like a Roll Tide family, I mean, okay. My dad was a first-generation Auburn fan. And so that's hard. That's hard to do. Um, <laughs> it, was far, it was a little bit easier then because, like, you didn't get to watch every, you know, we didn't have ESPN 3. We didn't have on-demand <laughs> ESPN stuff. So my dad grew up um, as an Auburn fan in an Alabama house, and then he became a Joe Namath fan after Super Bowl three. If you know anything about Super Bowl three, it's an incredible story. Look it up because it's, it's just a really, really neat story. The first year that they actually called it the Super Bowl. But my dad, <clears throat> my dad was a, was a Joe Namath fan and didn't know that Joe Namath played football in Alabama for the first few years because he was only eight at Super Bowl three. And so uh, uh, after my dad learned it though, he was like, I don't care. I still love Joe Namath. In fact, my dad, everybody called him Joe Willie which was Joe Namath's nickname. My dad, that was his nickname growing up um, all the way through school. Even today, if somebody hasn't seen my dad in a while, they call him Joe Willie. When I was about to be born, my parents found out I was a boy. And my dad said, I've got the perfect name. My dad's name is Joe. Okay, so that's why they call him Joe Willie. Dad said, what about Joseph William? Isn't that a beautiful name? And my mom said, we're not doing it. (laughs) Because I know what you're going to... So my dad actually wanted my real name, though his nickname was Joe Willie, he wanted my real name to be Joseph William. And so um, the, here's, the, here's the deal why I say all that. My dad was a fan, but none of us would consider him a diehard fan. Um, and here's why. Because what I've learned about fans, and we would all agree this, is it's not just about who you love. To be a diehard fan, you can follow recruiting, and you can follow, you can know who the free agents are, and who your team's going to pick, and you can go, you can study all those things. But at the end of the day, a diehard fan not only has someone to love, they also have someone to hate. Amen. <laughs> and so, as we're diving into this new study that I'm calling rivalry, as we study through here, I hope you get what I'm talking about. A truly diehard fan has to have someone to hate. If a Florida State fan. Can even mouth the words "Go Gators." There's something wrong deep within them, right? They're not really a true fan. If a UNC fan can go and jump alongside the Duke student section, no, they're not a real fan. And if an Auburn fan can wear a red and white checkered shirt in public, they're just not. They're not it, right? And so I hate. I have to. I don't. I can't even have red shirts because everybody just assumes that um, you're an Alabama fan if you wear red. Um, I can even remember. So in sports, we need someone to hate more than we need someone to love. I even heard an Alabama fan say this one time. I can stand to watch Alabama lose, but I can't stand to watch Auburn win. Right? I mean, that's an intense rivalry. And so um, that's that's what we're dealing with in the sports world. But what I'm noticing, and we're gonna, going to open your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 1. We're going to be there in a second, I promise you. Just a longer introduction this week. But what I'm noticing is that the, our world isn't just like this in the sports arena. Look at the political sphere. Sphere. Many Republicans hate Democrats more than they love and support their own candidates. Right? I read a joke this week. So, so since I made the joke... I'm, pointed that towards Republicans, now I'll point towards Democrats, so we'll just hit everybody, okay? If you're an independent, we'll come up later, okay? Um, Not we, I just mean you, whatever. All right, so um, Democrats, that wasn't a political statement, I didn't mean to. Um, Golly, this is derailing. Um, But I I read a joke this week that if if President Trump would just uh, acknowledge that the impeachment's a good thing. Like if he would come out and say, I'm glad we're doing this impeachment, that the Democrats would actually turn away from it, right? Because it's, it's less about what we actually believe and it's oftentimes more about what we hate. Um, and so that's what rivalry is. Um, I don't think it's just in the political sphere. I think in the workplace. I talk to a lot of people about their work. And what I find is that a lot of us in work don't have real deep friendships at work. Oftentimes we keep work and play separate. Your, your best friends are those that you hang out with on the weekend. But a lot of times they're not. Uh, some of you are different, and you're like, you got besties at work, and it's awesome because you get to sit by each other every day. Whatever. That's cool. But most people don't. Most people don't have best friends at work. But every single person that I talk to about their workplace has somebody that drives them nuts at work. <laughs> right? Everybody. There's somebody at your work that just you just can't. When they come in your office, you're like, goodness. Right, Because even in our workplace, we don't just need someone to love. Oftentimes, the sin nature within us says we need someone to hate. And so this is who we are. It's our sin nature at work every day. You see, God has called us to be people of love, and instead our sin nature forces us to find people to hate. Right? This is the brokenness of the sad state of the world, but it's a reality. We need to direct our bad feelings and frustrations towards someone. Now, here's what I'm glad. I'm glad that none of that finds its way into the church. Amen? Yeah. I'm just being honest. I've been a church kid my whole life. I've been around church. I know it ain't. It's here too. This attitude can exist in the church because sinful people are part of the church. So yes, this idea that we need someone to hate, it does bleed over into the church and it can be detrimental to the witness of a church in a community and it turns pastors into referees more than spiritual leaders. And some of you can testify to that because you've seen it. So right before the process of my first conversation with Andy John about being the pastor here, God laid it on my heart to study 1 Corinthians. And so uh, I began to do that and um, and I didn't know it was going to be kind of my first sermon series here, but that's just how God works. And so I want to show you verse 11, which is kind of like the, the thing we're going to harp on over and over again um, in this rivalry study. Verse 11 says, For it has been reported to me, this is Paul talking, we'll talk about that in a second, um, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, so they're the whistleblowers, that there is rivalry among you. There is rivalry. Among, Paul's not talking about sports, politics, or the workplace. Y'all, Paul is talking about the church of God. He's talking about the church that Christ died for. And he says there is rivalry here. Now, um, the Greek word that gets translated rivalry here, it gets translated a lot of other places. In, in your Bible, it may even be different as strife. Most often, it gets translated quarreling. How can those things exist in the church that has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus? That's Paul's argument. I believe Paul spends the rest of 1 Corinthians answering that question. He addresses multiple things that are hindering... Um, what uh, what 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 God has called us to be as churches, and so um, there 's a lot of other things that Paul talks about again it 's why you can preach through a year and a half through first corinthians we 're not going to do that i 've picked out five particular issues that deal with this there 's a lot of other topics, but there are five that seem to deal with the issue of rivalry in the church today's going to be kind of like an introduction to the book its author, its audience we 're going to kind of set like a theological uh, framework for the rest of the study. And then I've come up with five different, um, five different uh, parts of First Corinthians, and I, I titled them all with an F, okay, an F word. And so, two of them at the end, you're gonna have you're gonna have to show some grace to me, okay, because I couldn't do. I'm not good. I, I, this is my first pastorate, so I can't alliterate. I can't. I can, I'm not good at that yet. But the first the first study we're gonna look at is when factions divide. Then we're going to look at when family issues divide, and then we're going to look at when friction divides, and this is where the wheels run off. Okay, Um, I had to have I had to have our staff help me with this one. Um, When frivolity divides. Okay, thank you, Patrick. Uh, Now this last one, y'all, somebody's gonna y'all go ahead and go and get your phones out because you're going to want to Google this word because I thought it was made up. This one came from Miss Terry, our children's minister. She said. So the last one, week six, is going to be when Farago divides. (laughs) I don't, F-A-R-R-A-G-O. You can look it up. It's a real word. Okay, but anyway, I can't tell you what it means yet because we're going to get there. Okay, so five of those words, that's what we're going to talk about Um, because each one of them Paul Paul uses to address unity in the church. It's going to be a really fun study. Um, It's going to be hard at times like we've talked about. Um, but it's going to be. This is going to be a study that, for years to come, we're going to have to come back and revisit. Because we're going to set we're going to set some terminology for us as a church through this study that we're going to point back to. So when these issues come up, we can point back to factions, family issues, friction, frivolity, and farrago <laughs> Because you'll never forget the word farrago again. <laughs> And so this, this study is going to be important for us as a church moving forward. And so in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to see Paul set up kind of a theological discussion uh, for this letter. And so I'm going to read verses 9. I'm going to pray. And that was a really long introduction. I'm sorry, but we had to do it. And then we're going to come back and study this thing um, little bit by little bit, okay? Verse 1, Paul called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints, with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in him in every way, in all speech and all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await or eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me say a word of prayer. God, we do thank you that we know your word is true. And God, uh, we ask that your Holy Spirit uh, be in us and and among us and help us to understand uh, the truth that you have for us today from uh from the mistakes and and misfortunes of the church at Corinth, God, help us God to apply these things to our lives and live differently in Jesus' name, Amen. amen. So, as we just read in the text, this letter was written by Paul, y'all are on it, written to the church at Corinth, okay. Listen, we don't know all the birth stories of every church that Paul writes to. But Corinth is one that we get. We actually get in the book of Acts the story of the beginning of the church at Corinth. And it's a really cool story. And I know we're in 1 Corinthians 1, but I want to jump to Acts chapter 8. You don't have to go there. The words will be on the screen here in just a second. But in Acts chapter 18, we see Paul leaving the highly intellectual city of Athens where he's been debating philosophers and Stoics and, and this high church stuff. And he goes to the city of Corinth. And there are no mention. Sometimes when Paul gets to a city, the book of Acts tells us that there were already believers there. Corinth doesn't do that. One of the commentators I read said that Paul, a lot of scholars believe that Paul was the first Christian to step foot in the city limits. did wow. not that cool? I mean, in our like Bible Belt world, we can't even imagine that. But imagine being the first Christian into a new city. You know, it still happens, right? You know, there are unreached people around the world who have no access to Jesus Christ. Not everybody grew up in North Alabama, right? Still today, yearly, there are people stepping foot into villages and cities and, and even larger, almost countries, where there is no access to Jesus. They're the first Christian to step foot in that area. Really, really cool. So Paul is that for the church at Corinth. That's that's crazy for me to think about. But Paul stays with a couple of tent makers who he apparently leads to Christ, and they become highly influential, Aquila and Priscilla. If you've read the book of Acts, you've heard a lot about Aquila and Priscilla. Verse 4 in chapter 18 says that Paul reasoned in the synagogue every week on the Sabbath, trying to persuade everyone who, to believe. He winds up leading the leader of the synagogue to Christ, a guy named Crispus. Parents, great baby names here if you're a young family. Crispus. Um, but he leads Crispus to Christ. And the very next verse says this. Whoops, sorry. The very next verse says this. Many of the Christ- Corinthians... When they heard, believed, and were baptized. Many of the Corinthians. See, the people of Corinth were obviously responsive to the gospel. The Spirit of God was moving in awesome ways in the in the in the city of Corinth. And this is Paul has a dream. Paul didn't stay places long, man. He'd move in, he'd share the gospel, and he'd move on because God but listen to what happens in verse nine and ten of of Acts eighteen. The Lord said to Paul in the night vision. Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent. For I am with you and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you because I have many people in this city. Paul, God was saying to Paul, stay in it, man. There are more people left here who need to hear the gospel. And that's exactly what Paul does. In verse 11, we find out that Paul stayed a year and a half in the church at Corinth. Ministering, sharing the gospel, and establishing God's church. This is the beginning of the story of the church at Corinth. And if we're going to study <laughs> through the book, you needed to know the Genesis. You needed to know the the beginning of this people. And honestly, this this Ch- Acts chapter eighteen kind of leads us to believe, man, that these are these are spirit filled, hungry, just passionate people, right? I mean, they're just. God's doing a work and the church is exploding. Man, I bet they don't have any issues. And then we get 1st and 2nd Corinthians and you go, what issue didn't they have? Right? Read 1st and 2nd Corinthians, man, he talks about everything. Everything comes up. It becomes clear that they had the same issues that every church does. And when I read 1st Corinthians, when I studied it myself, the one thing that was blaring above everything else and I hope you agree once we finish the study, is that their biggest issue was unity? Paul's gonna un- unpack some of those particular issues um, around unity, but this morning, again, I wanna lay this theological framework. The first thing I think Paul, uh, maybe not the first thing in the text, but the first thing I wanna present to you um, that Paul was trying to get across to the church, uh, for them to think about the church, is that church is bigger than an individual. All right? Church is bigger than an individual. Um look how many u's are in this section okay if you got your look at your Bible open the u's y o u okay um it's not a ridiculous amount, but as I was studying, it stuck out to me okay He says, I thank my God for you god's grace was given to you, you were enriched in every way christ's testimony was confirmed in you. you do not lack any spiritual gift. you eagerly await Christ." He will strengthen you to the end. You will be blameless in that day and you were called into fellowship with Christ. So let me ask you, is Paul talking about an individual? He's not. Paul wrote this letter to the whole church. This letter was to be read out loud in the assembly of the Christians. And what with every word you That Paul uses in his letter, what is he reminding them of? Togetherness. Right? Look back at some of those. I thank my God for you. Yes, you, Jeff Herman, but the whole church. Right? God's grace was given to you. Yes, you as an individual, but the whole church. Right? And every one of these is gonna just jump off the page. Paul's helping them remember that Christianity is not some solo game. It's not one-on-one tennis. It's a team sport to its very core. Yesterday, I got to share um, at two halftimes of upward basketball games over at uh, Lindsey Lane Main Campus. and The thing I shared was that Christianity was never designed to be just about you and God. Um, Your decision to follow Christ is a personal one. I don't want to downplay that at all. But after that, the Christian life is supposed to be very much communal. That's what we see in Scripture. In fact, I did some research. Theologians and theologians, theologians. There we go. Theologians and Christian historians help us see that the 1900s changed the way, with the with the uh, the boom of uh, the evangelistic rally and all those things, has changed the way that the church and Christians view their faith. That we've begun to talk about faith like we didn't in the previous 1900 years Pastors began to put an emphasis on a personal relationship with jesus And i'm not i'm not trying to downplay that at all But what we've done is we've separated a personal relationship with jesus from the church You can come to an evangelistic rally You can get saved and live the rest of your life apart from church And god's going to honor that when you get to heaven That's not what we see in Scripture. We see that God, when you are saved, you are brought into a body, a body that's supposed to love and care for one another. And I think over the last hundred years, what we've seen, we've seen the damage of that. Now we have people sitting on a couch or in a tree stand every Sunday claiming to be followers of Jesus when they don't even love Jesus' wife, the church. I'm going to tell you, you want to be my friend? Love my wife. I have no best friend that treats my wife bad or talks bad about my wife. My best friends know my wife well. Amen? Jesus is the same way. The Bible calls the church the bride of Christ. You can't know Jesus without knowing his wife. You can't. This is what Christianity is. Christ is no different than than I am. How can someone claim to love Jesus when they aren't even acquainted with his bride? And we've caused this problem as preachers. But that's a sermon for a pastor's conference or something, not for you guys, okay? But the first thing to point out here from Paul's language is that this is, this, this church is bigger than you as an individual. This church doesn't exist to serve you. You are part of this church. That's what Paul is getting across with all these you statements, but he goes on. Second thing, church is bigger than a local body. I'm actually going to go back to verse two to look at this. I think Paul wanted to overwhelm his readers. Um, sometimes right, we have to, we have to remember that Paul wasn't just uh, like a factual, just boring guy. Like Paul wrote and spoke with passion and intentionality, and I believe. Uh, Sometimes we as readers and writers and speakers will write something that's so over the top because we're trying to prove a point. And I believe that's what Paul does in verse 2. Listen to what he says. To the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints. Okay, so right there. To the church of God at Corinth, to you that have been sanctified, you've been called as saints, okay? That's what we talked about. But now listen to this. With all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both their Lord and ours. Look at the reminder, right? Paul's saying, yeah, man, it's awesome what God's doing in Corinth. It's really, really cool. But don't lose sight of the fact that God's grace is bigger than harvest. God's grace is bigger than Corinth. Sorry, I messed that up, but bigger than harvest. God's grace is bigger than all of that. Paul reminds the saints of Corinth that they are part of a larger body who have been called by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I love how he ends uh, the, verse 2, both their Lord and ours. And again, it goes back to that Paul's trying to overwhelm them with the magnitude of Christ's reach. As we just talked about, oftentimes we get our blinders on and we have this happy, clappy image of us and Jesus, best friends, you know, Jesus is my homeboy kind of thing. But Jesus is bigger than that. It's not just about you. Jesus didn't just die for you. Yes, he's your personal savior, but he also died for those around the world. And he didn't just die for this church or this denomination, Jesus is my Lord. He's the Lord of Lindsay Lane East, but he's also the Lord of believers gathering today in Florida and in New York. Those gathering to worship on an Indian reservation in South Dakota. Some standing on a beach in Hawaii. Amen. Amen. <laughs> we all have our cross to bear. Some gathering in Japan, Russia, Kenya, Brazil, Australia, and to the tiniest portions of the world that you and I have never even heard of, villages that you and I will never get an opportunity to go to, Christians are gathering in those places, and he is their Lord. We need to think about that. Now let me blow your mind for one more second. Because Christ is not only a three-dimensional Lord, he's also a four-dimensional Lord. Uh, spooky, right? Because Jesus is not only Lord of the whole earth, he's also Lord of the entire framework of time. I'm going into string theory or something for your, anyway, if you like those movies. But what I'm saying is that when you think about the fact that Jesus is also the Lord of every believer who's ever died and every believer who is yet to come all around the world, I mean, that blows... My mind, and when we think about that, shouldn't it make you rethink the way we view Christianity and the issues and the personal problems we have with somebody else in the church? Right? Shouldn't it change the way? I think that's Paul's efforts. Paul saying, "Man, this thing's bigger than you. Get off your high horse. Quit fussing. Quit arguing with each other. Man, this thing's bigger than you." Love Jesus and follow him and do what God's called you to do. Uh, one of the podcasts that I listen to, if you're not a podcast person, that's fine. Um, I drive a lot. And so one of the things that I like to listen to is podcasts. And wh- I, I listen to a lot of theological deep, hurt-your-head kind of podcasts. But there's one that's just fun. I think we all need. It's like a fiction book. Just to, It's just fun I don't think we just need to overwhelm our minds with all deep things. I think it's okay to enjoy something. Um, but this week, this, this one podcast that I listened to, it's Christian Guys, um, but they were talking about the death of Kobe Bryant um, last Sunday, right? That happened last time we gathered together. Kobe Bryant was an NBA basketball star, retired. But they were talking about how great of a basketball player Kobe was, right? Wow. He's just incredible. Yet in the middle of that conversation, one of them says this, it seems trite to even be talking about the man's abilities in light of his death, right? Yeah, family, I know you're hurting. Wife, other children, friends. I know you've got, but do you you remember when he put up 60 against the Jazz in his last game? Do you remember that? Like, they're not thinking about that. They just lost someone they love, right? And I think our small everyday things that seem like big deals to us get totally Squashed In light of eternity Amen In light of the bigness of God's grace There is nothing That should stand in the way Of the the church moving forward And I think this is Paul's argument if he can get them thinking about the fact that God has redeemed folks from many other cities during this day and countries to follow Jesus and love one another, then these minor issues that the church at Corinth is having should be diminished. Listen, church, we have brothers and sisters around the world in places where it is illegal to be a Christian who will meet this week under the cover of night in secret places. You know that, right? And how's the temperature in the room to you guys? Is it warm, cold? How do you feel? The preacher preached a little too long last week, right? Do you like the paint color on the walls? I I think we could change it up a little bit. Isn't it silly, right? I think we need to rethink the petty issues. And if you fussed about those things recently, I didn't know that. I tried to pick things, (laughs) but no, if you fussed about the temperature, I really, that didn't come to me. It probably went to Greg and he handled it, okay? I'm not saying those are not things that we can talk about. But when we need to rethink, in light of the bigness of God's grace, in light of everything that's going on in the big scheme of things in the world, we, we must rethink the petty issues that we have with a brother or sister who's right here across the aisle. Paul's screaming that, man. This is bigger than your pettiness. It's bigger than your little issues. God is in a, listen to this, God is in a global, eternal, life-changing world business. Now, if you thought that I got a little fired up there, just wait. Number three, church is not only bigger than an individual or bigger than this local body. Church is a celebration of our union with Christ. There's one more thing that stuck out to me as I was reading and studying this week. And I'm going to use a theological term to talk about this. um, And I don't Always like to do that because sometimes theological terms can confuse us. But this is one, man, that has been in existence throughout Christian history. And for some reason, it's never talked about. And so uh, I want to bring it up. And that's this idea of union with Christ. Um, Over and over again in the New Testament. In fact, I read this week 200 times Paul references the term in Christ. That we are in Christ or we are with Christ or we are through Christ, of Christ, something along those lines. The Bible never fully explains who, what it means to be in Christ, but it gives us a lot of analogies. It's clear that this is a reference to believers. Believers in Jesus are in Christ. The idea ex- expands to include all the benefits that we have in Christ. Look at just the ones that are in this passage that we read from 1 Corinthians 1. Paul says we are sanctified or made holy where? In Christ. We are given grace by God in Christ. We are enriched in every way in him. And we are called into fellowship with him. These verses among many others are verses that teach us about our union with Christ. It's the listen, this is the eternal unchanging, consistent relationship that we have with God because we've trusted in Him. And by trusting in Him, we have been brought into a union, a marriage that is never-ending with Christ. So we usually just use the term salvation to describe our coming to Christ, but it's, salvation is actually only one small part of what the Bible says happens when we come to Jesus, when He, when he, when he does a work in us. All of those really could be summed up in union with Christ. The church then is at its core a gathering of the union. Those of us who have, been unif- un- those who have been brought into a union with Christ are gathering together to celebrate. Notice what Paul says in verse 9. Paul says in verse 9, God is faithful, amen? You were called by him into fellowship with, with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Two weeks ago, we looked at that word that gets translated as fellowship. What was the word? Koinonia, right? Koinonia. It's a Greek word, and it means so much more than fellowship. We talked about that it really means an ultimate sharing, a total sharing, a total togetherness. And we talked about it in relationship with one another, but Paul clarifies that we are brought into that koinonia, With Christ. We're not just in this koinonia. We're not just in fellowship with one another. Christ is in that fellowship too. Therefore. Though Christ. uh, Through Christ's redeeming blood. We as a church. Have been brought together. And therefore to separate ourselves. Through whatever means. Arguments. Disagreements. Whatever. Is to undermine the very thing. That the blood bought to begin with. You see that? We have been saved by Jesus to a body of Christ here in Harvest to impact the world. What we are doing here at East is bigger than me and it's bigger than you. It's about us. We've been saved, we've been redeemed. Listen, we've been bought for a purpose and we've been brought together for a purpose. We've been brought and brought for a purpose. We've got to acknowledge that togetherness. We've got to fight for it. And we've got to let it drive us deeper into who God has called us to be. Now, a lot of this has possibly been like drinking from a fire hydrant. Because I got a little fired up and got a little fast. But... As I was studying, I just kept getting more and more fired up about how Paul was setting this whole conversation up that we're going to spend the next few weeks talking about. Um, now listen, there's probably going to be at least one sermon that you're going to leave mad, just a heads up, okay? Because it's not easy stuff to talk about. Um, but just know, man, I, I'm I'm going to go home mad a couple of times too, probably more than you, Okay? Because this stuff speaks to me and it challenges me. But I, what I'm asking you to do, as we've seen, we've seen this kind of theological framework of what the church is today, I'm asking you over the next five weeks, commit to open and honesty about our hearts through this series. And let's be committed to put to death any rivalries that we find in our own heart or that we happen to see among others. And we'll talk about how to deal with that too, okay? So wait for that one. Don't blow it up today, okay? But we've got to do this. Today, we're going to sing one more song in closing. And during that song, I'm going to stand down front here. And if you've ever seen me, you know I stand down front and then I slip to the front row. That doesn't mean you can't come anymore (laughs) and talk to me. Um, I just know some of you get weirded out by the fact that I stare at you while I'm up here so I try to do that for a little bit, and then I'm going to slide to the front row. But I'm still available if you need to come and talk to me. Uh, We've got folks that would love to talk with you about anything that God may be speaking to you about today. Um, and we have others that come and kneel here uh, and voice a prayer to God about something that's on their heart. You're welcome to do that too. You may want to bring a request of a friend or neighbor to, to, to the altar to lift up to God. Um, you may want to come and ask God to help you open up to him in this series. Um, or if all this talk about entering into a relationship with Christ and being in a union with Christ got you recognizing that you've never done that, I'd love to talk to you about that as well because Jesus did die for the church, but he did die for you too. And so I'd love to show you how you can find uh, confidence in that today. So I'm going to pray. The uh, worship team's going to come up, and then we'll sing this one last song. Father, we love you, and God, we know that... Uh, um, God, that you have saved us as individuals, but God, your word speaks more about you saving us as a people. Um, God, may we never lose sight of that. God, may we never lose sight of what um, what you're doing in us and through us, God, and how you've brought us together. God, you bought us with a purpose and you brought us together for a purpose. God, I'm thankful that I get to call Lindsey Lane East my home and, and do life and worship and serve with these people God pray that over this next six to five weeks God that um, God you would make us stronger as individuals and stronger as a church God as we deal with some of the things that maybe even be underlying in a lot of our lives Um, because God you're bigger you have a bigger purpose than we even see for this church and God it's going to take us being together and moving together so God help us to find unity um, moving forward Bless this time as we gather together for this last song as we respond to you in our hearts or with our actions.